0: Last week we started a four-part series, sermon series, based on the idea of theological vision, which I wrote to you in the church newsletter. And I explained in there a vision of ministry for our church, which is very similar to one that we've had for a long time, but just kind of tuning it up a bit. So if we are to reach, as a church, if we're to reach both Christians and non-Christians in Dallas in their doubt and their denial with the reality of the redemption that God has offered to us by faith in Christ. If we're to do that, and if we're also to equip them, to equip each other to do God's kingdom work in every part of our lives, then how are we going to go about it? How will we approach the challenge to connect the timeless truths of the gospel to the timely truths? elements of our particular culture. And I have suggested to you that we think of it in terms of an invitation, that we as a congregation invite each other and our neighbors as well to come and receive from Jesus these things, reason and rest and renewal and restoration. Now last week we looked at Isaiah's invitation Come and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And we thought last week about the dignity that that reasoning of God affords to us, and about the candor that that reasoning of God requires of us, and about the grace that that reasoning of God reveals to us. God's reasoning invitation to every human being is. An invitation to find the very thing for which you look, which is rest. And therefore, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to do this very thing, to find rest for our souls as we look at your word. I pray that you would give us your spirit. Father, help us to see as you see. Help us to recognize your good news here in your word and to believe it and to be changed because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Elizabeth Smith Friedman is one of the more important people of whom you've probably never heard. In 1915, she graduated from Hillsdale College with a degree in English literature, and during her years of studying English literature, she also studied much, and I imagine probably mastered Latin and Greek and German She was a thinker. She was one who could perceive patterns and see and understand language in ways that most of us simply can't. One of her first jobs hired out of college was a quirky sort of job. She was hired by an eccentric millionaire who had some other people on the staff of a pet project of his, which was to decipher supposedly encrypted codes in the writings of William Shakespeare to prove that Shakespeare himself did not write the writings of William Shakespeare, Shakespeare but rather Sir Francis Bacon wrote them that theory has been debunked but nevertheless for Elizabeth it was the start of a career and she moved on from that into into a, a career in what at that time was really a new field. And in that new field, she met her husband, William Friedman, and they both together worked in the field of cryptology, the study of hidden messages, the study of concealed and secret messages, cryptology. And she would go on and work for the U.S. government for decades, most notably all throughout the years of World War II. And she, along with others, was... One of the primary people responsible for deciphering thousands and thousands of encrypted codes from Hitler's Nazi regime. And it is commonly thought by those who know of her that her behind-the-scenes work saved thousands of lives. Now, I tell you all that because sometimes the message of the gospel can seem like an encrypted code. Often that's because the Holy Spirit has not given understanding to someone so that they can see it. But sometimes it's because the church is so distracted by all the tangents around it and all the things that it can possibly do that it simply doesn't make its message clear. But that ought not to ever be. It ought not to ever be. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ... And he has invited you graciously to consider his reasoning. He's invited you to rest in God. He's invited you to find renewal by the work of God. And He's invited you to anticipate the restoration that is yet to come as the kingdom of God bears itself out all by faith in Jesus Christ. So like Isaiah, last week, Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet whose message is not hidden, but rather really is quite clear. God has provided for you all that your heart longs to have. In his redemptive work, there is rest for your soul. That is, in his redemptive work, you are accepted by God. So Isaiah explained last week a bit about his Surroundings in this context, it was about the year 740 BC when Isaiah began his prophetic work in the year that King Uzziah died. About a hundred years later on, Judah remained. So Isaiah prophesied to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, that southern kingdom. Because Isaiah was warning them to take heed of what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel that had wandered so far away from God and was on the brink of disaster. Isaiah warned Judah, don't follow after your brothers and sisters in Israel. They did. And a hundred years later, they did remain. But for 55 of those years, they had followed the leadership of King Manasseh and turned away From the Lord. And so Jeremiah prophesies also to Jerusalem, also to the people of Judah, and he tells them this at the beginning of his prophecy The words of the Lord My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now that may be poetic. But it's not cryptic. There's nothing hidden or mysterious about that message. They've turned away from God who gave them life. And they've turned to other things that have no life and they're striving in vain to find it. And so the prophet Jeremiah, in his poetic way, says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And find rest for your souls. Now, there is only one rest in Scripture. There's only one. And it is the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Our theological forefathers have defined it like this. They've said, it's an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all of our sin. And accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. That's justification. That's the rest that the gospel offers to us, and it is an ancient rest. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Now, prophets were poets. That's almost always the case. They're always poetic in their communication as God gave to them creatively metaphors in order to drive home the message of what God had for them to say. And so Jeremiah is poetically giving to us this picture of of justification. He's painting this picture of roads out on the countryside that diverge. They go off in different directions. And there's only one road where the good way is it's the way of gospel rest it's the way of justification by faith and it is an ancient path you have to know that it is an ancient path a hundred years before jeremiah began his prophecy again isaiah was at work in the same place in jerusalem and in judah And Isaiah spoke of the servant of the Lord. I want to read to you a few verses from Isaiah 53. This is what Isaiah described. Isaiah said, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the servant of the Lord, grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He bore the sin of many. Isaiah recognized that our sin was put on him. And his peace was put on us. Isaiah believed the ancient path. But it's older than Isaiah. King David, even, hundreds of years before Isaiah. David wrote this Psalm 32, in which which he tells us this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. Now, David had plenty of sin to cover. I mean, if there's anyone whose sin would just go overflowing out from underneath any blanket you tried to throw over it, it was surely David, right? It's surely you and me, too. And yet David is saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David recognized justification by faith and David believed in this ancient rest. But it's not just as old as David. It's as old as Abraham. Going back hundreds of years from David, even to Abraham. You know Abraham's story. God called him to leave his home and go to the land he'd show him. And Abraham went... And God told him, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham waited and waited and waited for a son to come. And finally the son came and God told Abraham, give the son back to me. And so Abraham was willing to do it because the writer of Hebrews tells us Abraham reasoned God could give him back from the dead. And Abraham was willing because Abraham believed God. And God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the old ancient path. But it's older than Abraham. It's old even as Adam and Eve in the garden. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And their rebellion against God and they're covering themselves with fig leaves, covering their shame, as it were, trying to do what David recognized had been done for him. And what did God do? He came to them. He reasoned with them. And then He offered them the rest of a covering. He killed an animal. And He covered them with the skin of the animal. He was offering them... The wonderful blessing of covering their shame, but a much better promise of actually taking away their guilt in years to come. Adam believed in justification by faith because he named his wife Eve the mother of all the living. It's an ancient path, an ancient rest that God has offered to us. And so when Paul, in Galatians, in the New Testament, if you fast forward in your Bible, when Paul says to the Galatians and addresses their problems, he's not he is not bringing up something new. He says to them, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the grace of Christ and turning to another gospel. Not that there is another gospel, he says, because there's not one. Paul says there's only the ancient path. That's all that there is. That's the only path in which to find rest. Abraham believed, Paul tells them, and It was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, it's an ancient path, but the problem with us is we like to devise new paths, don't we? We like to create new ways to justify ourselves. And we train ourselves to do it in the most subtle and and really even insidious way. What we do is we take good things and we make them to be everything. So we take good things like competition. Our family is in a season right now in which we, on Saturday mornings, go to cross-country meets. And watch our, our teenagers run cross-country. And it's always fun to do that. But the thing about a cross-country meet is, in order to run on the, the varsity, the, the kind of main team, you have to have one of the top seven times in the whole team. And so every week, your time is on the line. And if you're not in the top seven, the next week you don't get to run in the varsity. And it's, I would imagine, kind of stressful. Am I in the top seven this time? And we, we take that good thing of competition. And we make it everything because down deep we're wondering, am I good enough? Or we take good things like education. You strive, you students, you strive to make a good grade, maybe even to be in the top 10% of your class because, you know, as they say, top 10% gets automatic admission to the college and whatever. And you strive, and you strive, and you strive to be top 10%. And you take this good thing And you make it everything, and deep down you're wondering, am I good enough? Do I measure up? Or we take the good thing of occupations, and you strive to be the top-level sales associate, or you strive to be promoted to partner, or you strive to be recognized for your professional accomplishments in some way or shape or form, and down deep you're just wondering, am I good enough? Do I measure up? Am I sufficient? And so you've created for yourself a new path of self-justification, and there's no rest there. There never is. There never will be. Dallas is a place that's filled with people who are racing to get ahead to the front of the line. New St. Peter's is filled with people who are racing ahead to get to the front of the line. And the problem is, when you race to get ahead to the front of the line, what you do is you take good things... And you make them to be everything. You make them to be your very standing in the world. There is no new path for true rest. There is only the ancient path. The ancient rest of justification by faith. And it is also the only stable rest. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it so the good way is the walkable way right to stick with the metaphor of the prophet here it's the it's the way that's stable on which you can walk so for 300 years in jeremiah's time for 300 years judah the southern kingdom had been on a religious seesaw of sorts for 300 years they had been following their leaders their kings there had been about 18 kings in succession during their 300 years and of those 18 kings, eight of them were faithful, godly men who actually sought to follow the Lord and to do all that he had commanded and to be faithful to his covenant promises to his people. Eight of them were like that. The other 10 were not. The other 10 were unfaithful, ungodly men who sought to create new paths of self-justification for the people, And there was no rest for these people because there was no stability for them in their spiritual leadership. Now, you long for and you need stable rest before God. I'm going on a, a pastor's reti- t- retreat here in just a, a couple of weeks from now, a few weeks from now, along with some men from around the country. Many of them I have known well for years. And the one of us who is not me, the the one who is arranging all the the particulars of this retreat, emailed out to all of us. He he emailed out with two questions. He said, I need to know two things from you. What time are you planning to arrive on that Monday afternoon when the retreat begins? And do you snore? (laughs) He wants to protect the stable sleepers from the unstable ones, right? He wants to, to preserve the peaceful sleepers from the troubled sleepers and i appreciate you know the question i said i don't think that i snore maybe he should be asking our wives that question now i know that you've known troubled sleep before maybe you knew it last night someone in your house is sawing the proverbial logs Um, or someone in your house is straining over late night homework Or someone in your house is sick and needy of your attention. Or maybe there's no one in your house and the silence is unsettling to you. Just as you long for stable sleep, so also you long for the stable rest of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Now why Why is justification stable? What makes it stable? It's stable because it depends on God alone. Now, God saved us, Paul wrote to his friend Timothy. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the beginning of time. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. God gave us this grace in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God established the rest of justification in eternity as only God could possibly do. And God has stabilized it with two parts. Okay, John Calvin, that great theologian who's one of our our forebears in, in good theology, John Calvin wrote about it this way. He said, Justification is the acceptance with which God receives us into His favor as if we were righteous, and it consists of two things. Okay, listen. It consists first of this, the forgiveness of sins. And it consists of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Now, imputation is just a big word that means crediting. It consists of the forgiveness of sins and of the crediting of the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he wrote to them. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That's what, that's what Paul is saying there. God took our sins away, but he couldn't just make them disappear. You know, there's always that question that a skeptic might have. Is there, any, is, is there anything God can't do? Is there, can, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it up? That's just a, 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 an illogical distraction that takes you away from what really matters. Right? The answer is actually, yes, there are things God can't do. God can't just make our sin and guilt disappear. He has to put it somewhere. And where did He put it? He put it on Christ. He put it on Jesus. He put it on the Son of God. And that's forgiveness. But the problem is, many Christians stop right there in describing the gospel. Many Christians, if you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They'll say, it means that God has forgiven my sins. That's only half the story, folks. Look, if that's all God did for you, then you are in utter despair. You have big problems. If that's all that God did for you. I mean, do you ever struggle with a guilty conscience? Yes. I mean, nod your head. I know you do. Every one of you does. I do. I, and I'm, okay, I'm more guilty than you, I'm sure. But you're guilty too. We all struggle with guilty conscience, don't we? Why? Because we don't recognize that the gospel is more than just forgiveness. I mean, do you struggle with striving to do things for God? When I was a campus minister on a college campus, I remember clearly one young girl showed up on campus as a freshman and she got involved with everything Christian. She told me, I'm involved, I go to six Bible studies a week on campus. And I immediately said, Stop. You should not do that. And she kind of looked at me like I was just totally foreign. What? Do you, you're a minister. You're telling me not to go to Bible study? Yes. Quit it. Quit doing all this stuff for God. You know, there are Christians who quit being Christians because they just can't keep up. They, they say, I know God has forgiven me. He's wiped my slate clean, but I keep messing it up. I keep, I keep scarring that slate filthy, filthy dirty, and I can't help it. God has wiped my slate clean, but, he's, but I, what am I going to do now? That is a completely unstable path to walk on. You can't walk there. The forgiveness of sin is only half the gospel. God didn't just wipe your slate clean. He also credited you with the righteousness of Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what Paul is explaining there. There there are two sides of this path that make it stable. He has forgiven your sins, but he's credited you with the righteousness of Christ. Now, does that sound to you a bit excessive? That God has declared that you are righteous. You are as righteous as Jesus. That might sound a little bit excessive to you. It might sound a little bit irresponsible of God even. I mean, Down deep in your heart, you might think, Gosh God, I mean that's kind of that's kind of kind of risky. Right? I mean, look, our our teenagers, I love my kids more than life itself. I would I would jump in front of a train for them, but I won't give them a credit card. <laughs> One of them recently was trying to make an online purchase, and it was kind of a timely sort of thing. It needed to be kind of quick, and and he wisely, I mean, he he understood, he knew, he understood, he said, he said, Would you mind if I like, auto-saved your credit card information into my phone so that I can... He said, I know that might sound a little, you know. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I, Listen, I trust my kids. They're great kids. But I'm, I'm averse to such risk. I don't want my credit just wandering out in random places, right? God is a more gracious parent than I am. He's willing to credit his righteousness to me and then let me go wander out into the world. What am I going to do with it? I have it. It's mine. What am I going to do with it? This is what God has done for us in the gospel. It's ridiculous. It really is. It's it's absurd. And yet this is the grace of the gospel. God has credited you with his righteousness. And so only the stability of these two sides can create a rest that is also a deep rest because that's what it is it's it's deep stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls now this is not physical rest that jeremiah is writing about it's not that it's not what god is after here he's not too concerned about your physical rest he's happy for you to be worn out and tired in body but not in soul Right, so I mean the metaphor would break down here. You don't walk on a path in order to get physical rest. And you know, if you want physical rest, you're gonna leave the path and go out into the soft green grass under a shade tree and stretch out and go to sleep. That's what you're gonna do if you want physical rest, right? You can stretch out under a tree all day long, you can turn off the lights and climb into your comfy bed and and sleep all night long. Your body doesn't move hardly, it gets loss of rest, but when you arise your soul is weary. Have you known that before? Have you, have you woken up in the morning and your body hasn't done anything all night? You're just laying there all night asleep or even half asleep, but you get up in the morning and you're exhausted. Your soul is weary. Have you known that kind of weariness? If you have, it's because down deep in your heart, your answer to God's invitation has been the same as Jerusalem's answer to Jeremiah's invitation. Now, in, in the verse in your bulletin, there, verse 16, I actually left off the last phrase of that verse As the English is broken up into verses, I didn't include the next line, but uh, there is another line there. And as Jeremiah says, find rest for your souls, the next line is this, but they said, we will not walk in that path. I mean, down deep in your heart, sometimes that's your answer. Because you've insisted on performing and performing and performing for God and now you're fatigued. As was Martha, that disciple to whose house Jesus arrived as he was traveling in Luke chapter 10. You heard the story earlier this morning. It's a beautiful little story of Jesus entering the village, and Martha is is the the quintessential hostess. She's got the disciples in her house. She's trying to feed them and do the dishes and clean the towels and whatever she's doing, And, and her sister Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to all that he has to say and Martha was distracted with much serving, Luke tells us. Okay, so start to take the hint here. What she's doing is good, right? She's serving these people. She's taking a good thing. But now she begins to complain because she's upset. She says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Okay, there's a little bit of passive aggression there, right? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, Jesus, I mean... It's a beautiful response because he doesn't scold her for this. He comes to her and he says, Martha, Martha. Now the, the twofold name there is, is a term of endearment. It's, it's not scolding at all, it's it's compassion. He's saying to her, Martha, listen, I understand where you are. You're anxious and you're troubled. But only one thing is really necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion. Let me change that word. Mary has chosen the good path. She's walking on the good path. And it won't be taken away from her. Martha had taken a good thing, serving, and she had made it to be everything. She'd made it to be her reason for being in her own house. Her standing and significance before Jesus himself. And now she's having to defend it, she feels like. But Mary's chosen the good path. And what does Jesus imply to Martha in saying this to her? He implies an invitation. What is it? Martha, you too. Choose the good path. Martha, you don't need to prove yourself to me. Martha, you don't need to earn your place with me. Martha, you don't need to take a good thing, serving, and make it into your everything. Martha, don't even take the good thing of your moral moral obedience and, and make it into your everything. That's not going to get you there either. But rather, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am... Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, do you think that Jesus had read Jeremiah? I think he had. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is only one gospel rest. There's only one. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. I have a, a friend who, who I may see on this pastor's retreat here in a couple of weeks who, for years, has always liked to overstate this, this theological issue. And I think kind of to the point of hyperbole a bit. Some, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he's trying to make a point. Every time anyone has a problem, almost every time somebody comes with, with a problem, his answer is, you don't understand your justification. So you're stressed about that test you have to take this week? If you understood your justification, you wouldn't be stressed. So you're regretful over that strained relationship you're struggling with. If you understand your justification, you won't be regretful. So you're worried that your work won't meet the standard this week. If you understand your justification, you won't be worried. So you're straining to please God with your moral performance. If you understand your justification, then you'll quit straining. If you understand your justification then you will rest in God. So how will we as a church effectively reach and equip for the kingdom of God? There's really only one way to do it. By inviting people to know the ancient, stable, and deep rest of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your good news to us in Christ, and we pray that you would help us to believe it. pray that you would help us to trust you for it and to rest in you. Even as we come to these communion tables, Father, we pray that you would meet us there and cause us, Lord, to grow deeper in faith, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you do in and for and through us. And for this, we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.